The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Here, for those of you guys who don't know, uh, this is not normally how it is, but we're just going to do what we're going to do. Hey, uh, this morning is a little bit different um, in that um, the topics that we're covering today are going to possibly bring up some stuff for those of us who have experienced abuse, um, trauma of different kinds. And so we've, we've been giving a little bit of a warning before each bumper video the last couple of weeks and just saying, hey, there is some stuff, there's some topics that will be covered that if you have children that you do not want to have this conversation with yet, that you would go ahead and um, have the opportunity as a parent to decide whether this is appropriate for them or not to them. Today, we are going to be discussing some sexual trauma, and so I just want to make sure that you have that opportunity to do that. Secondly, I want you to know that, uh, that we do have a process and a plan here at Story City Church, and so if this brings up something from you, you're walking through trauma, we would love to walk through that journey with Jesus with you. Many of us have experienced trauma here. Myself, Samir was going to share some of his story this morning. It's, uh, it's just a tough one. We also know that because we work in the industry, there is a a huge issue with uh, trauma and sexual assault in the industry as well. And so we as a church do have biblical counseling and we have a connection to a local therapist. And so if you um, would like to talk to somebody, first and foremost, your, your community group leaders are here. They would love to walk through this with you. But anybody in a pink lanyard, anybody at the next steps tables will also talk to you about how you can get in touch with our care and our counseling department here. Uh, short version is that uh, if you get a hold of them within 24 hours, somebody will respond and get you uh, through intake to find the best level of care for where you're at. So is that okay? Is that good? All right, would you guys do this then? Let's go ahead and take a moment and watch this video. (laughs) There are some things that no one should ever have to endure, let alone our children. But did you catch the celebratory tone of her video? Did you catch that she has the ability to say that God is good, not when things are going well, but when talking about the type of abuse that she experienced? And there's something to that, that we say God is good. We say that God is a God of restoration. God is a God of redemption. That God is a God who pursues us. And yet, when we look at situations like that, it's, it's so difficult to, to imagine being able to say God is good and God loves me and God has been with me in this entire time. And today the story that we're going to read of Esther fits so perfectly with Izzy's testimony because this is much of what Esther experienced as well. And, and sometimes we look at these books in, in the Old Testament and the Bible and we go, that was thousands of years ago and how is it possibly relevant for us today? And, and I couldn't have showed you a better picture of why this is relevant for us and what God is trying to do in each and every one of us. Look, the short version is that the world is broken. It's not the way that God intended it to be. That sin, because of our sin, has broken the relationship between God and people, between people and people, between us and the earth. And someday God will come and set those things right. Someday God will restore everything to the way that he intended it to be. In fact, it'll be better than he first created it. 
But in the meantime, we still live in a broken and fallen world, and that means that we experience pain and suffering and death and abuse and cancer and just grotesque things that we are not designed for or made for. And, and we wonder, why does not God just intervene? Where is God in the midst of all these things? That's the question that comes up for us more often than not. And the truth is that God is right here in the midst of us because God didn't create the evil, but God always finds ways. We're going to see this today, that God always finds ways to redeem and restore that he brings us to a place where we can see him walking with us through these things. And somehow, whether we understand in this lifetime or not, God uses the situations and experiences that we've been in that he didn't create, but he uses them for what's best for us and for his kingdom. Today I said we're going to be in the book of Esther. If you want to open your Bibles, go ahead and open your Bibles with me. If you open them right to about the middle, that's the Psalms. Psalms in the middle of your Bible. If you keep going, um, the book before Psalms is the book of Job, not Job. Some people think it's Job, it's Job. Uh, so if you're looking for jobs, that's not the book to go to, that won't help you. The book before Job is Esther. So if you open to the middle, you go left, go back towards the beginning, you will find the book of Job, and then the book right before that is Esther. If you find Nehemiah, you went too far, Okay. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. One of the things you'll hear people talk about is the fact that God is not mentioned in the book of Esther at all. God is never actually mentioned in the book of Esther. It's one of those books that people go, well, how is that possible? Well, because the original Jewish audience who was reading this book would have seen God's hand clearly throughout the story. It was so evident that it was almost not necessary because it was just clearly a picture of who their God is and was and what he was doing. And so it's, it's an unusual book because it made the canon Without mentioning God, but again, you'll see God's hand is evident throughout that. Now, over the past three weeks, we have been learning through uh, the stories of people like um, Hannah and David and uh, Gidon and others. And we see that God uh, is, there's some common themes here. We see that God is present, that he's pursuant. He goes after his people. He meets them where they are. That he goes to great lengths to rescue and have a relationship with his people. That we've seen that God is the one who fights our battles. We've seen that God's timing is always perfect and right. And that God's glory is always the point, not our own. And we go through this story today, I want you to look for those themes in Esther's life and be thinking about what that means for yours as well. So let's get this started. Now again, this is last minute, so I apologize. We will not have the scriptures up on the screen for you today, so you'll just have to listen and uh, follow along, unless you're following along in your, in your Bible itself. We'll start with Esther 1, 1 to 12. These events took place during the days of Asahurus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. In those days, King Asahurus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress of Susa. He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staff, the army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the officials from the provinces. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. That's a lot of splendor and greatness. <laughs> At the end of his time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people, from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. White and blue linen hangings were fastened with fine white and purple linen cords to silver rods on marble columns. Gold and silver couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of red feldspar, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. 
Drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. The, king, the drinking was according to the royal decree. There are no restrictions. The king had ordered every wine steward in his household to serve whatever each person wanted. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of King Asahurus' palace. On the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, Asahurus commanded Meham, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abbatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who personally served him, to bring Queen Vashti before him with her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people and the officials because she was very beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. All right. This king is a real king. Uh, his more popular name is King Xerxes. Some of you might have heard of King Xerxes. In fact, it's the same Xerxes, if you've seen the movie 300, that fought against the, brought his vast Persian armies against the Greek uh, and were defeated by the 300 Spartan warriors. Same king, King Xerxes. It's the one that had the, the naval trouncing shortly after that. Same guy. In fact, some scholars believe that the reason this party is being thrown is to celebrate and arrange for the upcoming war against the Greeks. That's a party to celebrate how great he is so that they get military buy-in so that he comes in and he can take over and, uh, and that he's sort of like pumping himself up before the fight, if that makes sense. Now, there are several theories as to why Queen Vashti refused to come to the king. You've probably heard some of them if you've been around churches before. Uh, here's the truth. Uh, some of them get into to all kinds of weird stuff. The truth is that no one knows. The Bible doesn't say we have no idea why she refused. We have no idea what it meant. We have no idea why it made him so angry. The truth is, it doesn't really matter. She didn't show up. It made him angry. And so we have a response. So let's not get too hung up on why or why not. She didn't show. It doesn't really matter. He consults his wise men and, uh, and he has to replace her with somebody else. And so the king goes off to war against the Greeks and the search begins. But let's pick up the story in chapter 2. And see what's happening here, how Esther comes into this story. Chapter 2, verses 7 to 17. Now, Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah. That's Esther. Now, she has changed her name to hide her Jewish heritage. It's not a popular thing to be a Jew. It's not a wise thing to be a Jew at this point. And so Mordecai uh, knows that he needs to change her name. Now, one other thing, if you remember, Mordecai and Esther are not there by accident. All of the people, remember we talked a couple weeks ago about how when a conquering nation came in, they invaded a smaller nation, especially like uh, Babylon, Babylon, can't say it, Babylon, they would take the best and the brightest from the, the nations they conquered, and they would bring them in, all the best poets, the best writers, the best uh, lawyers, the best uh, rulers, the royal kids, those who were exceptional in some way, and they would bring them into their kingdom, they would indoctrinate them in the ways of the bigger kingdom, and, uh, and that way, two things would happen. They would get the best and the brightest who would now contribute to their kingdom, bring the glory of their kingdom greater. But also, those people, because they've been educated and cared for in this new system, would end up actually promoting a new culture instead of their old culture. And so it's a death or, or killing off of a culture through assimilation. And so this is part of why, uh, to protect her, Mordecai changes her name. So this is what's going on. But remember, they're there on purpose. They're there because they had some sort of talent, gift, ability, or something that made them valuable to the empire. So Mordecai is her uh, guardian because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. 
When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor, so he accelerated the process of her beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and the servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. During a year, uh, real quick, before I say this, uh, what I missed was the fact that um, to find his new queen, uh, the king had ordered that the, all the best-looking virgins in the entire land be basically brought into his harem. And so he has selected this, I don't know, America's Got Talent, uh, America's Top Model, whatever you want to say for Babylon, and he picks his 300 or so um, women, and this is one of them. This is what happens. So this is already kind of a, a tough thing. Mordecai um, understands what's happening, but he's, he's checking on her. So verse 11, every day Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and see what was happening to her. During the year before each woman's turn to go to King Asahurus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening, and in the morning she would return to the second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Shaajgaz, keeper, I'm sorry, I don't know what that one, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. This is horrific. <clears throat> Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. When, he, when her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Asahurus in the palace of the tenth month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed a royal crown on her head and made her queen in the place of Vashti. Okay. You have this thing going on, and if you notice, it, this isn't like... The Bible sums things up, right? Like this, they're telling a story. What you miss is the day in and the day out experience of this. Esther comes in and there's six months of one type of treatment and then another six months of another treatment. She's literally being prepped for one night with this king where she may or may not please him. And if she doesn't please him, the, the best her life could ever be is living as a used concubine in his service. That's the promise, the hope of her life from here on out. And she lives with the understanding of this every single day for a year. But God knows what he's doing. He has a plan. He brings favor to her. And she becomes queen. Now, in the meantime, as a part of the story, there is a man named Haman who becomes second in command in the entire empire. 
Now Xerxes, that's the king, Azahurius, is also called Xerxes. He believed himself to be a god. And so when he passed by, everyone was supposed to bow. And this same symbol of respect, Haman wants for himself. He wants the same worship for himself. And so Haman demands the same symbol of respect, and everybody complies except Mordecai. And Mordecai starts this showdown. Now, Haman is so incensed, he decides not just to kill Mordecai, but he wants to wipe out all the people of Israel. He wants to wipe out every Jew in the world across the kingdom. And so he actually tricks King Xerxes into allowing him to enact a decree that allows genocide. Told you this story is already a rough one. And so the king, not realizing that uh, Esther is Jewish, is like uh, basically told, hey, there's people who are trying to use super authority. They don't believe in you as God. They want to murder you. They're trying to rise up and take your kingdom from you. And so the king's like, well, yeah, of course, like wipe them out. No problem. But one of the rules was that as soon as a law was written in this empire, it could never be done. It could never be undone. That's important for later. Mordecai gets word to Esther about the plan and says he believes it's no accident she's been made queen at this time in this place. And so he begs her to stand in the gap for the people. Now so skip over to chapter 4 with me. Esther 4, 10 to 16 says this. Esther spoke to Haftach and commanded him to tell Mordecai, All the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in their inner courtyard and who has not been summoned, the death penalty. In other words, if anybody comes to the king who hasn't been asked for, they die. Unless the king extends the golden scepter, allowing that person to live. She goes on to say, I have not been summoned to the peer before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. Skipping to chapter 5. On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing his entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor with him. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand towards Esther, and she approached and touched the lip tip of his scepter. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked. Whatever you want, even half the kingdom will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king said, hurry and get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even half the kingdom will be done. Esther answered, this is my petition, my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases my king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. That day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage towards Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described to them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials in the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. 
His wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, Have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. Now, once again, we're here because the people of Israel had disobeyed God over and over and over again. God allowed conquering armies to come in and take them over. This is a part, a result of their own sin. And God had told them, this is going to happen. You're going to be dispersed throughout the world as God's word is always true. It does happen. And, uh, and so we see this is where we end up. Now, uh, Mordecai is there on purpose. Esther's there on purpose. We know that they had those positions that allowed them to be taken and so whatever reason that they ended up in this spot is purposeful, and it's a part of God's plan. Now, God isn't the one that did the evil and conquered the nation and took them into captivity, right? That happened because of their sin, but God isn't the one that did it. But God has a plan to rescue and renew and redeem through the sin of the other nation and to restore through it. We're going to see this. And so if you're taking notes today, this is our first observation. Like Esther, God places us for a purpose. Like Esther, God places us for a purpose. Again, the slides aren't up there because I have different points than Samir had. Now, this isn't a good king. He's not even a semi-decent king. He's not a godly king in any way. And in fact, we have to remember that this is a really dark time for the people of Israel. The temple's been destroyed. They're not in their homeland. But even in the midst of the darkest places, God's light is there to penetrate the darkness. Guess what? You are the light. Jesus said it himself in Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand and gives and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I want you for a moment to put yourself in Mordecai and Esther's place. Esther's parents aren't alive More than likely, they're killed by the very empire that she is now serving. She and Mordecai are captives in a foreign land, and suddenly she's ordered to become a part of King's harem as a concubine. I'm sure that she, when she was growing up and playing dolls, was not dreaming of being a concubine when she grew up. Not many people do. I'm sure that she was confused and hurt and angry and Wondering, where is God in the midst of this, as I think all of us would be? But see, again, God has always had a redemption plan. And we need to understand that that God, Esther is able to be herself with God. Esther is able to bring herself to God. Esther is able to be in this place. and, And like Izzy talked about, she knows God has never left her. I think for us, we need to understand that God can handle our hurt, our frustration, our skepticism, our anger, our bitterness, and still love us and do what's best for us. He's loving and faithful even when we aren't. But it's also his battle to fight. It's his battle to fight. You know, there was a time where I dreamed of revenge against my abusers. There was times when I couldn't do anything but dream of the ways I was going to harm them, dream of the ways that I was going to bring retribution. I don't know many victims who have not thought that way. But the truth is that there is a process and a way to destroy yourself in trying to bring revenge on other people. There is a way to lose yourself in that. And there's something that happens when we actually surrender to God as the champion of our battles instead of trying to take those things on ourselves. There's 
something that happens that, that's opposite of what we want. There's when we come to a place of surrender instead of a place of trying to, again, fight the battle on our own. This isn't just a cliche thing when I say we need to let God fight our battles for us. I'm talking from a place of pain and brokenness and from many, many, many other people who have shared their stories with me of pain and brokenness that it is true that the only real way to walk through it with true healing and redemption is by surrender. And I don't mean surrender to victimization. I don't mean surrender to to feeling like you're defined by the event. I mean... Surrender to God being the one who is the one that takes everything on himself. In fact, if you think about it, all of our sins are placed on Jesus. That means that everything we could ever wish on a person has already been done to Jesus. And I can't think of a more horrendous way to die, a more horrendous thing to go through than what Jesus went through. That's more than I would ever even wish on my abusers. When we do things on our own, we fall short of accomplishing the thing that God wants to accomplish in us and through us. Last week I mentioned that we don't have to be qualified but obedient. And the reality is that Esther wasn't qualified either. She was just obedient. And so if you're taking notes today, I want you to know that God's purpose is accomplished through surrender, not control. I love the contrast between Esther and Haman. Haman was all about himself. He's all about power and glory and honor for himself. And, and it's the refusal to give glory to Haman that sets up this battle between Mordecai and him. When Haman's threatened, what does he do? Verse 11, Haman described them as glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them how all the king, all, how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials in the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the banquet she had prepared. I'm invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. When Esther is threatened, what does she do? She goes to God in fear and trembling. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, not her day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. I love that. If I perish, I perish. Everything is in God's hands now. She's completely given herself to God's will. God's going to do what God's going to do. She doesn't know how it's going to end, but she trusts God, trusts God anyway. I said this last week, that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but control. Pastor Tim Keller is one that said it. He said, the opposite of faith is not doubt but control. We see that Esther isn't sure she's going to survive, but she gives God control anyway. And just like Hannah, Hannah and David and the others, she starts by going to God in prayer, by bringing her battle she's facing to her heavenly father. And then she's obedient, even in the face of uncertainty and death. And this is what we're called to as well. The Bible says when we're most strong, when we're weak, and realize that it's not through our strength that the battle is won. So how does it work out for Esther? Chapter 7, verses 1 to 10 says this. The king and Haman came to the feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even half the kingdom will be done. Queen Esther answered, If I found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, Who is this, and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Esther answered, The adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. you imagine the look on Haman's face in that moment? Oh, I wish I was there. (laughs) Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. 
Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. Now, this isn't like I tripped and fell. Like this is so, this is such a power dynamic, right? He is over her in a way that is not just power, but it also obviously intonates a sexual position in the sense that that maybe not what he was trying to do, but it came across as that. It's so clear that it's unnatural and not a place that Haman should be in. We know this because the king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I'm in the house? He thinks she's trying to rape her. This is how violent this Haman is being over her at this moment. Again, this is not a pretty picture, but this is the end. This is the end of this story. Actually, it's not, but I'll, I'll explain that in a minute. As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's units, said, There's a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house, made for Mordecai, who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, Hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai, and the king's anger subsided. Now, here's the deal. The Jews are saved. They can't rescind the law, so the, the king actually makes another law. says, Hey, by the way, uh, yeah, all the Jews can be wiped out, but the Jews can defend themselves, and I'm going to help them. So it becomes this mass deal. The Jews actually are saved. They actually take a little farther. They go kill some of their own enemies. Uh, But they're saved. Now, here's the incredible thing. The whole story is actually bigger than this. Because the truth is that, remember, God had exiled them to the nation of Babylon, but he promised they would come back. He said they were going to be in captivity for 70 years. Through the entire time that they're in captivity, he has been working on these kings. We see this through Daniel and the lion's den. We haven't got there yet, but we will. We'll see this, how the interaction. We see this with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see that the king is showing himself with Nebuchadnezzar. God is showing himself to the king and saying, I am the true king. I'm the one over you, and you have nothing without me. And here's the deal. When this king writes that the Jews could no longer be destroyed, that they had the ability to defend themselves, that they can't be wiped out, it actually opens the door for them to get back out of exile and go home. See, if they had left without that protection of the king forever, they could have just been easily wiped out when they're trying to rebuild. They're a small nation again, and they have to rebuild their homeland. But the fact that they went through this, the fact that God redeems them through, the, through this situation with Esther and he writes this law that allows them to defend themselves, they now have a chance they would never have had if God didn't step through and do this. And so God doesn't just redeem Esther and Mordecai through this circumstance. He doesn't just save the Jews. He actually provides a way for them to safely go back to their homeland, which we're going to see later. But even more than that, it's a picture of Jesus. See, we were set for annihilation, and Jesus literally died in our place. God pursues his people into the darkest kingdoms on earth to rescue his people. Jesus did the same thing. He took on human nature in addition to his God nature and entered into our sin, into our brokenness. He took on what was meant for us, the destruction meant for us on himself. One last thing that is interesting is that Esther's name, the name chosen, means morning star or morning light. Did you know that Jesus is called the morning star, the morning light? It's a picture that God is always, again, with us. That even though he doesn't 
cause evil. He redeems evil, and he works through what evil intends for evil, and he makes it for our own good to a place where we can say, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy, but you know what? I am who I am because God has used those things to create me who I am now. And I can say that God is good despite the things that I have been through. We are not where we are by accident, that God has placed us, that you, family, are a part of God's will right where you are. You're not by accident. The things you're going through are not by accident. That God is with you. He is good. That you don't have to fight your battles on your own. He will fight them for you. I just want you to know and encourage you that God loves you right where you're at. I want you to look this week at your own lives and say, God, where are the areas that the enemy meant for evil that you are working to redeem? Because I want to surrender to you. This has been a hard one this morning, at least for me, maybe not for you. But I want you to know that we are, again, as family, we want to embrace and share in each other's stories. And the truth is that Life is messy. It's not easy. One of the things we say here a lot is that you may have come here by yourself, but you are not alone. You're not. You're here with family. We love you. We want to walk with you. Let's pray. God, you are our redeemer. You are our rescuer. You are good. Well, there's been times in my life where it's been very difficult to be able to to say that, that you are good. But Lord, I know it to be true. So many others have found it to be true too because you are faithful, you are loving, you are gracious. You are our protector. And though we don't always understand why you allow us to experience things that we do, we know that you don't cause them, but you do redeem them. Lord, would you continue to redeem your people? Lord, not just in this congregation, not just in this city, not just in the valley, not just in this county, not in this state, in this country, but in this world, that you would continue to rescue, renew, and redeem your people. Thank you that that is exactly what you came to do. And that in you, through the power of the name of Jesus, through the power of the blood of Jesus, we can have a right relationship, a restored relationship with the Father. Lord, help us to surrender. We believe. Help us in our unbelief. In the name of Jesus.